Americanized mind because we have become so Gnostic in our way of thinking that, oh, marriage is about souls uniting. Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a single Bible verse that talks about souls uniting in marriage. But flesh uniting in marriage? The two becoming one flesh and that manifesting itself and the, the two become one flesh and offspring? Well, absolutely. So the Bible is much more earthy, much more fleshly, much more material and grounded, and much less Gnostic than we are. Okay, Bob. Yeah, I was going to say uh, that's referred to as benefits even. Yes, right, the language of benefits. So you can be friends with benefits or this kind of thing. Yeah, although I'm sure that's dated already because that was kind of going on when I was in uh, high school, I think. So, yeah, who knows? But it's a good description of the, the level of respect it lacks. Right, right. And not seeing it as a, simply an organic part of, the, uh, of marriage. It, constitutive of what marriage is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we can get lost in the weeds with all the analysis because our culture is simply so broken. Just about any level of analysis you do is probably going to be right. Suffice it to say, this has been one of the key, key things that Chrysostom unashamedly points out that, look, if you're withholding from one another, um, you're destroying the marriage. We note in passing on page 26 that Chrysostom, 4th century, talks about married clergy. <laughs> From the apostles all the way through the 4th century at least. It goes beyond that, but isn't that something? Married clergy. So how Catholic is a Catholic church that doesn't follow the tradition of the first four centuries? All right, uh, bottom of 26, let's just hit one more line here in this respect. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Reference there to verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 7. And what are conjugal rights, Chrysostom asks? First, it means that the wife has no power over her own body, but she is her husband's slave and also his ruler. Ah, there's the paradox. If you, refer, if you refuse to serve your husband properly, you offend God. So, wife, if you want to abstain even for a little while, get your husband's permission first. And by the way, that, uh, that goes vice versa, of course. So, um, you are your spouse's slave and ruler. There's the, there's the paradox. Chrysostom goes on, on page 27, to mention in passing, Money, that if you don't even have control over your body, how much less do you have control over your own money? Okay, so you can see the principle is overarching that in marriage you're wholly given over uh, to another and they to you, and that certainly includes money. Chrysostom also wisely talking about uh, usually the two, two of the three major loci for fighting and discontent in a marriage uh, sex and money, the third being time. Where, where and how you spend your time. Yeah. <clears throat> Simply picking up on page 27, and looks like if we count lines down from the top, three, six, nine, somewhere around the ninth or tenth line is where I am. Chrysostom writes, Now I admit that elsewhere in Scripture, both in the Old and New Testaments, men are given far greater authority. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Of 
quotation of Genesis 3.16. Or husbands, love your wives and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Reference to Ephesians 5. Notice Paul's choice of words. In this passage, however, there is no mention of greater or lesser authority. So in 1 Corinthians 7, there's no talk of greater or lesser authority. Where does he, Paul, speak here in terms of equality? Because his subject is conjugal fidelity. He intends for the husband to have the greater responsibility in nearly every concern, but fidelity is an exception. The husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. Husband and wife are equally responsible for the honor of their marriage bed. Do not refuse or defraud, and we talked about that. Defraud is probably the better way of of thinking it. Do not defraud one another except by agreement. In what sense fraud? Because you said, I do, and you gave yourself over in marriage uh, vow, and and now to withhold that is to defraud. It's to say you, you were going to do something and then not. Okay, so do not defraud one another except by agreement, and that's verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 7. What does this really mean, Chrysostom asks. Paul is saying that the wife should not abstain without her husband's consent and vice versa. Why? Because great evils, adulteries, fornications, and broken homes among them have often resulted from this kind of abstinence. And then kind of an interesting argument here. If men fornicate even when they have the consolation of their wives, what do you expect will happen if they are deprived of this? No wonder Paul calls such a refusal an act of fraud, just as he has spoken of conjugal rights as a debt to be paid in order to show the importance of mutual authority within marriage. If one abstains without the other's consent, it is an act of fraud. But if consent is given, it is not just as if you took something of mine that I had already given you. I could, uh, I could not call it theft. Theft occurs only if you take something by force without my consent. This is what many wives do when they refuse their husbands. They commit a sin which outweighs the righteousness of their abstinence. They are responsible for their husband's licentiousness and the broken homes that result. Now, elsewhere Chrysostom says, look, infidelity is is the responsibility of the person who's cheating, no doubt about it. But here he takes the other side of the coin and says, look, <laughs> where, where it's being withheld in the marriage, then the person doing with the holding becomes culpable, at least in part, for the, for the cheating that takes place, for the, for the broken home that results. So I, again, I mean, this is a, this is a time when, when men are men and pastors are pastors and they're speaking bluntly and forthrightly. And, and so, uh, so does Chrysostom here, but when's the last time you've heard this kind of sermon be preached? I mean, I've, I've grown up in the Lutheran church, and I can't think of a single time. I'm sure I, it's possible I missed it, but I can think of a single time in any, in any church, in any sermon, in any Bible class, in any study. Um, we've pounded on the point that, that Chrysostom is pounding on. It's a biblical point, foundational to marriage. Uh, especially perilous in our time is... Um, with feminism and sort of the upside downing of the family, I won't get too far into into the weeds here. Um, 
there seems to be a sort of encouragement for, for women to use this as their central leverage point and power point within, within the marriage. And uh, sadly, this is this is taken over in, even in, in many many Christian marriages. Um, whereas I as I think I lamented back in in November, the presenting symptom is you know this husband who is you know not behaving himself. Whether that's he's he's gotten irritable and uncharitable and contentious in the house or. He's spending money frivolously, or he's online looking at pornography, or whatever the case may be. That's the presenting symptom, only to only to trace it back to this root of well, the bedroom's been closed for who knows how long. It's like, well, you think that there might be a connection there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paul points that out. Chrysostom points that out. Okay. Now driving driving again to the deeper point that that underpins this. Is the very idea of nature of of marriage, um, giving yourself wholly over to another? All right. Um, now this takes us into the new material. This is basically where we left off, if if memory serves. So let's simply look at uh, let's look at the conclusion of that paragraph, roughly where I left off. So instead of behaving this way, they should value harmony. Above everything, nothing is more important. Let us examine these things more closely. Imagine a household in which the wife abstains from marital relations without her husband's consent. Suppose he commits fornication, or on the other hand, remains continent, but frets and complains, loses his temper, and constantly fights with his wife. Either way, what good is all the fasting and continence? No good at all. It has broken love to pieces. How much abuse, trouble, and fighting has resulted from this? When husband and wife are at odds with one another, their household is in no better shape than a storm-tossed ship in which the captain and the pilot disagree. That is why Paul says, Do not refuse one another except by agreement for a season that you may devote yourselves to prayer. All right. Yeah, as, as I recently read, someone put it, I thought very lovely, the, the relationship between the husband and wife is the, is the soil in which the children grow. Whew. Kind of indicting because, because, you know, what marriage is perfect. But that's, the, that's really the call to nurture marriage uh, and to nurture the relationship between husband and wife, even in the midst of the busyness of life and the demands of children and all the rest. Um, simply because that is the soil in which the children grow. That the children are are soaking in that relationship as the as the ground of their being and reality. Okay. And we can reflect, um, not to get too Freudian, but we can even reflect on our own upbringings and that, and, and consider what soil we ourselves individually were were raised in, and how that's how that shaped us, maybe positively in some instances, negatively in others. Um, ways that we've overcome or ways that we still suffer from. So um, very, very uh, important insight there, I think, again, stemming from Chrysostom's words. Okay, now what about, what about Paul's language of devoting yourselves to prayer? What does he mean? What does he mean? And so here Chrysostom picks this idea up. He is referring to unusually intense prayer. Otherwise, if he forbids those who have marital relations to pray, his words about ceaseless prayer would have no meaning. 
It is certainly possible to be married and to pray at the same time, but prayer can be intensified by abstinence. Notice that he does not merely say that you may pray, but that you may devote yourselves to prayer. He does not mean that sexual relations would make the prayer unclean. He simply means that they occupy one's attention. Now, quoting Paul again, but then come together again, lest Satan tempt you. Okay, so what might be some, what might be some mutually agreed upon abs- abstinence? Viewing Advent or Lent as penitential seasons and coming to some sort of agreement to refrain from uh, sexual intercourse or to limit the frequency of it during those periods. That would be normal. Um, in, some, in some instances, I'm aware, uh, people have, have reserved uh, Sundays entirely or, or Saturday night into Sunday morning entirely. It's just This is the Lord's day. We're about his business. We're about his things. We're not concerned with the rest. Um, so these would be maybe concrete examples of what Paul's talking about. Now, at the, at the very end of where I left off, Chrysostom points out how St. Paul mentions that husband and wife need to come together again lest Satan tempt you. And so there's a spiritual warfare dynamic, um, again, where, where one spouse or the other, and it could just as easily be the male. I know Chrysostom's focused on the female here, and probably because in his experience that's the most common. Um, but it could just as easily be the male who's uh, refusing the female, the husband who's refusing the wife. And in these instances, um, there's a spiritual warfare dynamic because you're essentially leaving your spouse, you're hanging them out to dry, you're making them pray for the temptations of the devil. Top of page 29, in order that he may not seem to be legislating arbitrarily, he offers an explanation, lest Satan tempt you. And to demonstrate that the devil is not solely responsible for temptations to adultery, he says, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. I say this by way of concession, not command. I wish that all were as I myself am, that is, in a state of continence. He often uses himself as an example when speaking of difficult matters. Be imitators of me. All right, so here we're introduced into the idea of continence, which is, is used narrowly here for um, you know, being celibate outside of marriage. And continence and chastity have some overlap. Um, you can talk about continence outside of marriage and what shape that takes. And you can talk about continence within marriage and what shape that takes. It's the same principle. They just take two different shapes. And the same is true for chastity. Chastity, properly understood, takes on a form if one is not married and and takes on a different form if one is married. But the whole point is they're the same virtue. They're the same virtue. All right, Chrysostom continues. But each one, quoting St. Paul, but each one has his own special gift from God one of one kind and one of another. He says this to encourage the Corinthians since he has just sternly accused them of lacking self-control. Each has his own special gift from God. He doesn't mean that we don't have to strive zealously for self-control, but simply wants to comfort them, as I have just said. If self-control is a gift and man can't attain it by his efforts, how could he say, 
To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain single as I do. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. You can see Paul's common sense here. He says that continence is better, but does not force a person who cannot attain it, fearing that defeat may result. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Verse 9. Here he shows how great a tyranny the passions exercise over us. What he means is something like this. If you suffer with violent burning passion, then relieve your pain and sweat through marriage before you utterly collapse. All right. So some are given to withstand these temptations. Some don't feel them much at all. Um, that's kind of continence, how it's been being used in this section in a narrow sort of way. Um, for everyone else, there is marriage. And marriage then becomes the, the way of retaining chastity. Um, the passions uh, have their proper outlet within marriage. But what is, uh, what is raised here is this, this phrase, the passions. And sometimes the language here is the appetites. And this has to do with the desires of the flesh. It actually ties into the discipline of fasting, um, as well as abstinence, but fasting more broadly into other categories. So we have, the body has appetites to sleep too much. The body has appetites to eat too much and to eat too much of the wrong thing. The body has appetites sexually that we you know, refer to as lust, and those appetites can be uh, disordered or too much. Um, there's other appetites as well, more subtle, but appetites toward power, appetites towards the applause of others. Um, we could go on and on. We could list appetites and uh, passions probably for the rest of the class period. But these sinful impulses, these passions, are precisely what we're called to put to death to daily drown in, in the baptismal waters and emerge righteous and holy in purity before God. So putting these passions to death, as we're putting them to death, um, you know, do you remember The Hammer of God uh, by Bo Geertz? So, uh, that, that novel we read. Uh, and there's, there's this beautiful sermon, maybe you remember, I even preach it from time to time, sometimes with my own words, sometimes direct quoting. But the pastor talks about three different kinds of sin. And he talks about someone becoming a Christian. And he likens it to a field that's, that's got to be, all the rocks got to be pulled out of it so it can become fertile farm ground. And a person who just becomes a Christian goes out into the field and sees all these little rocks that are totally manageable. And he heaps them all up and scoops them all out. And it's done in a day. And he thinks, that's it. I've, I've conquered sin. You know, I'm really making it. This was easy. And of course, if you're a Christian for about 15 minutes longer, uh, you go back out into that field and, and you go down to pick up what you think is a, is a, little, is a little stone and it won't budge and suddenly you realize it's a huge boulder. It's a huge boulder. And so you work and work and work, sometimes futilely, sometimes you give up, sometimes you go back to work. Eventually, you might remove this boulder only to realize that there are other boulders like this that take great effort and great time, and you even give up on it for a while and come back to it to try to remove. But they are technically removable. That's the second kind of sin. 
The third kind of sin is you're, you're going along and you think, okay, well, here's a stone. You uncover it. All right, here's a boulder. Got to find the edges. Got to get to work on this thing. And you go and go and you realize there's no edge. <laughs> there's no edge. Now, this, this third category of sin is, as with all sins, easier to see in another person. Easier to see in another person. But each one of us have them as well. And, and these, are, these are as if they're written into our personalities. They're not. They're written into our personalities only by virtue of the fall into sin, only by the corruption of our nature. They're not essential to who we are. But in a sense, they're semi-permanent. They're not, it's going to take death to remove them. They're not going anywhere. Sometimes as a pastor, um, a Christian, a married Christian couple will, will come to me and over the course of some sessions and discussing what the problem is, one of them will realize that the other person's just not going to change. Maybe even a step deeper, they're actually incapable of it. Because for them to change this dynamic of their personality would be to change their very personality. They're incapable of it. In the same way you can't you can't pluck bedrock out of, a, out of a field. It simply has to be atoned for. The blood of Christ crucified has to drip upon that bedrock and, and cleanse it. And in order to, for it to be fixed, God, God alone can fix it through death and resurrection. It's just the way it is this side of life. And I think, I think as, we look at our, as we look at our spouses, we get to know them better and better. You've, you find like, okay, this is a pebble. I can get after him or her, and that, that can be removed, you know. And likewise, I mean, this is a mutual thing. That's a boulder. It's going to take some time. We can work on this. We can go to counseling. We can get the help we need. We can et cetera, et cetera, address this. We can go see the past. We can do confession absolution, okay? Um, and, and we can identify those kinds of sins. But there are also things we can say, well, that's just the way she is. That's just the way he is. And then the shape of marriage isn't, well, I can't live with that. That's an irreconcilable, irreconcilable difference. I mean, sorry, this is where C.S. Lewis is just very blunt and says, you're a fool. The fool just goes on to another field, to blur analogies here, the fool just goes on to another field only to discover the same thing. And then he does it again and does it again. What, what the scriptures, what God would have for us there is to exercise the same forgiveness with which he forgives us and to simply overlook those great grievous immovable sins and navigate them to the best of your ability throughout the course of life. Now when we're talking about the passions, we can talk about the passions in each one of these three ways, but I suppose properly speaking, passions are those things that really if you trace them all the way back, they don't go away, at least not entirely. Even if you get rid of the deed, there might be the word. And even if you get rid of the deed and the word, there's the thought and there's the impulse. And you simply can't get rid of that. It's just there. Okay. So what do you do in the case of being, you know, you're a single person, you're a young man, a young woman, and, and lust is just there. That, that passion, that appetite is just there. And, and no matter what you do, no matter what you try, there's this burning and unquenchable uh, nature to it. Marriage then. Marriage then that within the, within the bounds of marriage, we can find chastity with help. Right? And that's probably the best way of looking at the, 
the remedy aspect, the remedial aspect of marriage, because there's also a false belief that many young, I think, particularly Christian men have. It's like, okay, well, as soon as I get into marriage, that means I can just have all the sex I want all the time, and that'll solve my lust. Ha! <laughs> First of all, as a passion, it's bottomless and insatiable. It's, it's no different than um, gluttony or pride or um, drunkenness. It may be temporarily satisfied at best, but it always flares back up. It always requires to eat and consume more. Uh, more applause from men, more attention, more food, more drink, more, you know, on and on. That's the nature of it. Okay, so then how is marriage a remedy? Not in the sense that you just let the passion of lust run wild and rampant and expect your spouse to keep up, but rather through the mutual giving over of oneself, right? your body's not your own but hers, her body's not her own but yours, you are able to come much more to a middle ground and you're able to find chastity with help. You're able to find confines and bounds and expression of this, all right, that are, that are biblically permissible and God-pleasing. This, by the way, is, uh, is the nature of all things. It's not, ex- it's not exclusive to marriage. When we're talking about this deepest level of the passions, the bedrock type of stuff that's just there, so much of, of what life in a fallen world is, is learning to navigate that and express that in ways that are uh, God-pleasing and not self-destructive. So you, you, love, you love food, you're a foodie, and you're, you know, how might you shape and form that? Well, in the first place, moderation. And the second place, some frugality and fasting. In the third place, some sharing of the gifts. Um, these are ways in which you can, you can um, fashion a remedy or an acceptable usage of the passion that otherwise of, it, of its own accord goes awry. Now, viewing the, passions, viewing the passions this way is complex, too, because there's a sense in which you can say, well, this passion or this aspect of the passion is inherently evil. This passion or aspect of the passion isn't. So just to show you how theologians have wrestled with this and the idea of marriage, is, is the sexual desire of the husband for his wife, the wife for her husband, is that in and of itself inherently sinful or not? No, God created the sexes to be attracted to each other. So in and of itself, it's not, that passion is an inherently wrong. But the way that Chrysostom and many of the church fathers use passion is not so much the, the passion in its idealized state, but the passion as we see it in reality, corrupted by the fall into sin. And that, that is where then you say, well, it's not inherently evil, but it is inherently disordered by virtue of the fall into sin, by, by virtue of concupiscence. Okay. And so then we can talk about how do, you, how do you remedy that? How do you treat how you know, the passion corrupted in such a way you can't make it uncorrupted this side? How do you mitigate that? How do you shape and form that into a way that's healthy? All right. Well, I've probably beat that drum 
plenty. But this is, um, this is a foundational way to how the church fathers think. And I think it's a really good and helpful way for us to recover the way we think, to think in terms of passions and appetites and how it is that in a fallen world we can rein these in. All right. Continence and chastity presented for us on page 29. Any thoughts, questions, comments you have, as always, feel free to raise your hand or um, just let me know. Yes? It's interesting to me that he hasn't even mentioned procreation yet. I don't know if he does, That's such a great point, Bob. Yeah. This observation is that, he, is that Chrysostom here is uh, probably, what, five, ten minutes into his sermon, he hasn't mentioned procreation once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. This is, a, even in the, the sort of orthodox, Christian, correct, proper reaction against um, the sexual immorality and mess that is American culture today, very often it's, it's sort of a one-sided or lopsided response, and it's so heavily based upon procreation. It is fascinating to see that neither Paul in, in this text narrowly or... Um, Chrysostom and his treatment of this text address that issue. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Good point. Good point. Okay, let's, let's go down to, uh, to 29. Is everyone in here warm enough? Does it feel too warm? No? You're a little too warm? Maybe if we just want to stop it where it is? Is that possible? I feel that I'm, like I'm about to approach the fifth level of purgatory here. <laughs> But it's my fault. I put on my pastor sweater. So here I am, suffering. Anyway, thank you. All right, all right. So the bottom of, the bottom of page 29. To the married I give charge, not I but the Lord. Again, quoting verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, not I here because he is about to quote a law which Christ himself established that a man cannot divorce his wife except for reasons of unchastity. Paul's previous words, though not explicitly spoken by Christ, was nevertheless inspired by him. There, however, Christ speaks specifically. That is the difference between I and not I. Never imagine Paul's words to be merely human opinion, since he says, I think that I have the Spirit of God. Verse 40. This is a tangential issue in the text, is where, where Paul says, I, not the Lord, is that suddenly an uninspired part of Holy Scripture? Well, here you have Chrysostom's treatment. Again, this is all tangential to our topic, but he says, no, he absolutely is, is still inspired because he says, I have the Holy Spirit. He's simply making a distinction between a direct commandment he received from the Lord and his other Holy Spirit-inspired thoughts. Chrysostom continues, Now what exactly does the Lord command married couples? The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, let her remain single or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Here, direct quotation of St. Paul, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 7, all right? Uh, a challenging teaching for us to hear as 21st century Americans. Um, but but here's, here's the thing. Uh, 
you know, the wife should not separate from her husband. If she does, I think, I think the assumption here is for biblical, for biblical reasons, though perhaps it also includes not biblical reasons. If she sees sufficient to have a divorce, or he sees sufficient to have a divorce, then at that point, uh, the spouse should remain single or else be reconciled to the husband. I think, I think you can see where our culture has gone off the rails in opposition to this, um, where it's basically just, uh, you know, divorce on demand. As soon as the going gets tough, just get a divorce. And that's very common. That's very common. Um, my, my wife and I, from time to time, this is like, it's not really even a guilty pleasure because I don't think we take much pleasure in it. <laughs> but we will sometimes watch, we will sometimes watch, or, or at least follow from a distance, uh, The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. Have you seen this thing? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But, but what's fascinating is um, it is a reflection of our culture's views of marriage and dating and love and sex and what all these things are. And it's not only that. It's then, because it's on TV, it's also catechesis. So we're watching catechism for all the... I mean, this show, is, I think, is really designed for, like, 15-year-olds, I think. Um, and so there's a, there's a catechetical component, like, this is how life works. Very fascinating also that the show repeatedly as a theme... I'm off on a tangent here, but repeatedly as a theme chooses Christian uh, bachelors or bachelorettes. Um, I think the most recent Bachelor even had a prayer to open the whole thing right before a season of debauch, you know. Um, and what would be the catechetical point of that? Hey, you can be a Christian and live exactly as a non-Christian, and we can all get along just fine. Christianity is a set of beliefs that has nothing to do with how you live. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, anyway... Um, the, the last bachelorette is a, is a divorcee and she's you know, looking to get married and, and this is what, that was one of her comments is that when things get hard, it's easier to just say goodbye. It's easier to just get a divorce. And I think, I think that, 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 that's stunningly true and we have a society ha, have designed it to be such. It's, every once in a while in the Midwest, I remember you, you're driving down the interstate and you could see signs that said, you know, um, have your divorce paperwork done in an hour or something like divorce in an hour, divorce in a day, you know. I mean, think about that. That's the remedy. So, so how do we, how does the Bible instruct us contrary to that? And how does, how do we react against that? Well, in the first place, in the first place, it, as unattractive as this may be to us, we ought to consider the unattractiveness of our present milieu and consider what Paul says, that, the, uh, that a person who is divorced ought to remain single or be reconciled to the spouse. Now, there are, there are pastoral nuances to this, without a doubt. And there are, there are uh, instances where reconciliation with the other spouse is an impossibility. And there are instances then where a, a Christian person who finds themselves in divorce 
is sitting there going, okay, well, I know I'm supposed to say, stay single or be reconciled to my spouse. Reconciliation is impossible. Um, my spouse absolutely won't have it. Uh, but in remaining single, then I burn with lust. So what now? Right? Um, I, uh, God hasn't given me the gift of celibacy outside of marriage. So I've got to, uh, I've got to pursue this. And, and many pastors, I mean, I think, I think almost all Lutheran pastors uh, do hold that there are, there are, because of these very dynamics, there are times in which it is most advisable to uh, allow a person to remarry. Um, and so, you know, some of you have experienced that, and many in our congregation have experienced that, and, and many uh, in America have experienced that. But that's where that comes from. And you can see the baseline that St. Paul puts in place here. And again, it's worth absorbing, as difficult and, and as unattractive as it may be, it's worth absorbing because it gives us a different baseline than our culture is giving us. All right. So page 30, and we are about eight, nine lines down from the top of page 30. Since we see that separations occur, whether caused by abstinence, pettiness, or other motives, he says that although it would be better for such things never to happen, when they do happen, the wife should still remain with her husband. Even if they don't have sexual relations, at least she won't take another man to be her husband. Ah, yeah. Here you see, yet again, that marriage, contrary to what we've been told, we've been told marriage is all about finding your soulmate and living happily ever after and having it all. And if you can't with the person you're with, you need to divorce them and go find that with someone you can. Your, your highest goal and purpose in life is to be happy and so pursue happiness at all costs. But what the scriptures call us to, what Chrysostom calls us to here is to consider marriage impacts not just me, not just my spouse, but children, family units, congregation, society, community, everything uh, feels a divorce. So thus, thus, Chrysostom points out on the basis of Paul's words that that look, where, even where there's abstinence, pettiness, other, other nasty things going on in the marriage, um, it would be better to remain. It would be better to remain. All right, again, again, in our day and age, and um, this, of course, stretches way back into the 20th century, way back. Um, but in our day and age of divorce on demand, this is all very counterintuitive. And, uh, but it's worth considering because it's a path of selflessness and it's a path of not putting one's own personal happiness above all other things. I can't remember who said it, but it's, but it's exactly right. That uh, if you, you, know, you, you have children or you have extended family, young enough maybe you don't have children, but you have, obviously have parents, perhaps siblings. When you get a divorce, whatever, whatever cross you're bearing in that marriage that's so painful, when you get a divorce, you just put that cross on others. You can see that particularly in the case of, of children where the divorce takes place. Is, uh, mom or dad says, that's it, I can't, carry the, I can't carry this cross, I can't carry this suffering anymore, and so I'm just going to set it down and it's not going to affect anyone else. Oh, the truth is it gets set down on the backs of everyone around, most heavily upon the children. And that's just, that's just a fact. It's an ugly fact. Um, 
But why, why be honest and why not sugarcoat it? Precisely because now we see the need for absolution. We see the need for the blood of Jesus. We see the need for the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We see the need for God to lead us in mercies that are new every day and give us a fresh start and a clean heart and um, perpetually wash us daily in baptismal flood. In other words, only when we're willing to see our sin accurately and in its full strength and nastiness, only then do we, do we really come to grasp the sweetness of the gospel and how wonderfully God loves us and provides for us in the means of grace, in the self-donation and giving of his son on the cross. All right. So then, uh, last paragraph on page 30. To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Quotations of verses 12 through 13. Now, what's the context here? Paul is by no means, and Christensen's going to say this, but Paul is by no means saying, hey, if you're a believer, you should, go, you should go find an unbelieving spouse. That is not what he's saying. What is he speaking to? He's speaking to the circumstance of, hey, you were married when you were both pagan, when you were both non-Christian. Now one of you has become Christian. Now what? Okay, that's, the, that's the context into which he's speaking. Chrysostom now writes, Earlier in this epistle, when Paul warns us not to associate with immoral men, he corrects himself by restricting his prohibition to immoral men among the brethren. There's the key. Immoral men among the brethren. He does this to make things easier. Otherwise, we would have to leave this world. So also here, he provides us with the easiest solution. If a wife has an unbelieving husband or vice versa, let not one leave the other. What do you think of that? Does it surprise you that although unbelief is worse than fornication, an unbeliever is to remain with his spouse? But fornication is grounds for separation. Fornication is indeed the lesser sin. But here God in his great mercy shows us that the lesser sins can prevent us from conquering the greater. For instance, Christ says in the gospel, leave your gift here before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Of course, this is Matthew 5. Consider also the man who owed 10,000 talents, reference to Matthew 18. God didn't punish him because he couldn't pay the money but because he refused to forgive a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. Likewise, fornication might be a lesser evil, but where it remains secure, unbelief will never be overthrown. St. Paul also realized that a Christian wife might worry that intercourse with an unbelieving husband is an impure act. He dispels such fears by saying the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her husband. Now this doesn't mean saved or justified in the eyes of God. It simply means sanctified in the sense that the conjugal act isn't going to be in and of itself something inherently displeasing to God. Nor will the children who result from that be inherently displeasing to God. Yeah. 
I'll write a little bit more with, with Chrysostom and then we'll be done. Let's just finish this paragraph. Yet earlier, he, Paul, said, Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? We might then conclude that a woman joined to an unbelieving idolater becomes one body with him. Is there a contradiction here? No, because although they become one body, the woman is not defiled since the purity of her faith is stronger than the impurity of his unbelief. Likewise, the purity of a believing husband is stronger than the impurity of an unbelieving wife. All right. Well, we will, uh, we will jump back into this next week, and we, will, uh, we have just a little bit more work to do in terms of what happens when two unbelievers are married and one becomes a Christian. And then we're going to turn, we're going to turn at least in part to the concept of duties of marriage. Duties of marriage. And we're only going to touch on that briefly, but it does introduce for us a very important paradigm that, again, is completely contrary to the way we've all been taught to think about marriage. Marriage isn't, like, I'll just put it, I'll just put it in, in very stark hyperbolic terms. Marriage isn't meant for romance. Marriage is a job. <laughs> How do you like that? Probably not very much because we're all American, but it's true and there's wonderful, beautiful freedom in this. Marriage is a job. All of our vocations are jobs and we are not serving the person specifically. We are serving God by, by serving the person or people uh, in those vo- vocations. All right, so more on, more on the duties of marriage, the concept of vocation to come next week. The Lord be with you.